Good morning. Nice to see so many of you who think it's a reasonable thing to spend a day sitting, doing nothing. And a special welcome to those of you uh, who are new to our community. Uh, Everyday Zen is a Zen practice community that has been uh, in formal existence uh, since 2000, since the turn of the millennium. We are a Soto Zen a Buddhist Sangha in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi, which is the same lineage as the San Francisco Zen Center. So uh, we're glad to be here uh, every month at Green Gulch for our sitting. I, I was a resident of Green Gulch for, for a long time, and we raised our children here. So Green Gulch is home for me. The Everyday Zen community is uh, purposely very simple. If you want to join us, and you are more than welcome to do so, it's simple. Just keep showing up. That's all you need to do. Showing up to our, uh, if you want, daily sitting online every morning at 7.30 a highly civilized hour, <laughs> and uh, our Dharma seminar uh, every Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Both those things are online in our monthly sittings. Is this on? Yeah. Yeah, this is on. Yeah? Okay. Okay. And you're all, you're all hearing, right? Sometimes people can't hear and they don't let me know, but... But no, you can hear. Good. So the practice of everyday Zen is uh, Zazen, just sitting, which is also really simple to do. All you have to do is sit down, sit up straight, pay attention to your body, to your breathing, the best you can. And whatever else happens, let it happen. Let it come, let it go. It turns out that everything does come and go if you just let it. And that this is a very joyful thing when you open your heart to it. And so if you practice Zazen over time and you listen to teachings and take them to heart, you're going to eventually learn a better way to live without forcing anything willing to accept things as they come, and to see, uh, little by little, how absolutely, stunningly perfect this human world is, even when it is really difficult. The fact of the matter is that we are all extremely fortunate uh, to be alive. Sometimes uh, one of the Buddhist magazines will ask me to write an article for them. Are you hearing okay? Can you hear Natalie? You, are you hearing my voice okay? 
Yeah, okay. Um, so sometimes one of the Buddhist magazines asked me to write an article for them because uh, they know that I write fast. So they can ask me to write it in a short amount of time. And also they know that I always deliver the articles on time. So I don't give them any problems. And so that's why they asked me to write uh, articles. And then when I do that, I often, to save time and uh, effort, present the article as a Dharma talk. So that's what I'm going to do today. So I wrote this uh, little essay for Buddha Dharma magazine. And the subject of the essay, as they assigned to me, was the role of the teacher in Buddhism, because they're going to do a kind of spread on this topic. And they asked me to write sort of a general uh, introductory essay about uh, the teacher in Buddhism. And so that is what I'm going to do right now, is I'm going to read you this essay that I wrote in the hopes that it will be of some interest and use to you. So here is the essay. The three treasures are the foundation of Buddhism. Buddha, the teacher, Dharma, the teaching, Sangha, the community. Taking refuge in the three treasures is the beginning and the end of the Buddhist path. Also, incidentally, it will be the end of our sitting today. That's the last thing we do at the end of the day, is take refuge in the three treasures. It's the beginning of the Buddhist path because from the very beginning, you depend on the Buddha Dharma Sangha to guide your way. And it's also the end of the Buddhist path because your spiritual transformation will bring you to a profound appreciation of an identity with the three treasures. And there are three of them. Sometimes they compare it to a tripod with three legs. You need all three without one. One is missing and the tripod falls over. Without Sangha, there's no companionship, no encouragement, no support, nothing to uphold the Dharma. Sangha is so important. Without the Dharma, there's no way of life no understanding of life that will hold the Sangha together. Dharma is obviously really important. And without the Buddha, who teaches the Dharma and leads the Sangha, there is no path at all. The three treasures form an inseparable unit, each treasure depending on the others, each one equal, each one central. In theistic traditions, uh, the, the pattern uh, framework of this seems a little different because where there's a God who is an absolute, there couldn't be any other comparable factor. No human being could ever be on the same level as God. So there you can have clergy, you can have teachers who are proficient in the doctrine, 
You can have priests who even are said to have some special capacity for intercession. But there is no person who can be as integral to the goal of union with or of or union with or obedience to God in the way that the teacher who stands in the role of the Buddha is integral to the accomplishment of the Buddha, Buddhist path. So in a way, you know, our Western tradition doesn't uh, give us uh, a model for this. There are some versions of the Buddhist tradition in which the teacher is so highly respected and so highly regarded that they almost become a deity. They're understood to be a very special kind of person, a guru with unique power to bring a faithful student to realization. Sometimes when you read the stories of the old Zen teachers, it can sound like that. And I remember long ago when Buddhism was very new around here and the older generation of great Asian Buddhist teachers were still alive, how exciting it was, how amazing it was to visit with them. The room would be electric. You, you would be, it would take your breath away. But even at that time, I always thought that was a little over the top, personally. And maybe it was, maybe that was not really anything more than the fantasy of we young people in the 1960s. But it was really powerful. And many, many people in my generation Many made lifetime commitments to practice the Dharma based on their faith in these people. But whether or not that was overblown and exaggerated, I think it was a true reflection of the position of Buddhist teachers in traditional Asian cultures of the past, cultures in which uh, family and national structures were and maybe still are to this day extremely hierarchical and usually male-dominated. But even in Buddhist traditions that have this idea of the teacher embedded in, in them, the preservation of that feeling for the teacher in the West, or maybe even in the postmodern East, seems problematic because it overbalances the teacher, placing them not equal with Dharma and Sangha, but somehow uh, beyond them. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we have Buddha, Dharma, Sangha in the proper balance? How do we have, because I think we need, a real teachers in Buddhism? It's not easy, and, and it's especially difficult 
now in our Western cultures, which are so mistrustful right now, more than ever, you know, so mistrustful of power and hierarchy. Even our great and acknowledged moral heroes as the telltale biographies attest, have feet of clay. We didn't know it at the time, but now we know it. So how could you trust any, any leader, really? Especially a spiritual leader, maybe. But even today, there are people who somehow manage to forget about all that and throw themselves into complete investment in spiritual teachers and, and they can end up pretty out of whack, losing any critical distance or any personal agency. So it's not an easy thing uh, how to trust a teacher. And it's not really necessarily a personal thing. It's, it's a, something a culture has to learn how to do together. The logical alternative to that is to have a sangha that doesn't have any teachers or hierarchies. A crowdsourced dharma. Seems like a good idea. To give people what they expect, what they want, and what they feel they need. And why not? This is very contemporary. Works well with the economic system. Sounds good, and maybe it works out. I don't say it doesn't. But from my point of view, it doesn't seem sufficient. Without the Buddha treasure, the Dharma and the Sangha treasures will be hard to sustain. So this is a challenge for us now. And I don't think anybody has the answer to it. I don't think anybody could possibly have the answer to it. I think it's something we're all going to do collectively in, in different ways, in different places, among different people, by trial and sometimes painful error. And we've already made plenty of painful errors from which we've learned. But I think it will work out eventually. Because the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are too precious to disappear, and they will always find a way. There's an interesting uh, set of step-by-step -step instructions about teachers that the Buddha gives in the Kanki Sutta, uh, number 95 in the Majjhima Nikaya, which you can easily find online. I'm using the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation of the text, but uh, there are others. It's, uh, the, the sutra is, is, a, is a, somebody asks a question, uh, how do you find the truth? How do you really awaken and find the truth? And the Buddha then answers that question in the following way. He says, the first thing you need to do 
is find a teacher. The next thing you need to do is to examine the teacher over time and see whether they have sufficiently overcome greed, aversion, and delusion. So that's the beginning of what you need to do if you want to discover the truth. So this implies two things. First, clearly, he says, you need to start with a teacher, and that's up to you to find that person. But also, it's up to you to evaluate that person, and apparently you are capable of doing that. Your evaluation is sound. But second, the basis for your, your evaluation is not the teacher's verbal, intellectual, or spiritual skills, but whether the person is fair, ethical, stable, kind. In other words, whether the person has overcome the natural, self-centered impulses that every human being is subject to. And the Buddha, as I read it, doesn't seem to be saying you have to find you know, the perfect person who's the paragon of virtue, because in my experience, this is impossible to find somebody like that. Only that the person would be aware of who they are. And being aware of who they are, that they would be more or less in command of themselves. And that you would be able to see this by observing their behavior over time. So once you've done that, and you've found a teacher in whom you can have confidence, then you visit that teacher, you hang around them, you listen to their teachings, which are sometimes verbal and sometimes not verbal. You then investigate these teachings, you reflect on them, and you see for yourself whether they are true, implying that this is your responsibility and you can do this. And you have to have enough initial faith in the teacher to want to you know, listen enough to be able to investigate and verify. And once you've done that, so this, these are steps, right? Once you've done that, the next thing you have to do is apply energy and effort to scrutinize these teachings ever more deeply until, the Buddha says, and now I'm quoting directly from Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, until you, and this is a quote, realize with the body the supreme truth and see it by penetrating it with wisdom. And this realizing and seeing, as we will read in a minute, is actually the initiatory moment of awakening. It's the moment when you realize 
that the teachings really, really are true, and you know it with your whole body and your whole mind and your whole heart. There's no doubt. You might not understand them all or be able to explain them or be an expert on them, but you do really know they're true. And that's the beginning. And then he says, the final arrival, this is again a quote from the sutra, the final arrival at the truth, the Buddha goes on, lies in the repetition, development, and cultivation of those same things. So it's a little bit like Dogen when he says practice is realization. Realization is practice. In other words, awakening is an ongoing affair. The final arrival is the ongoing practice of cultivation and refinement over a lifetime. So you're the one who does the practice. You're the one who has the capacity to find, evaluate, and understand the teachings. Find and evaluate the teacher and understand and penetrate the teachings. It's you and your own body and mind that realizes the way. Nobody else can do this work for you. But it begins with finding a teacher and having confidence in that teacher who will illuminate the Dharma and the Sangha for you, who will open up your great road. So trust in the teacher is the secret sauce of the Buddhist path. The path begins with it and maybe also ends with it. And my reflections on this uh, over a long time is that this seems really true to me. And that what the Buddha here calls the final arrival is fundamentally a matter of profound trust. Trusting yourself completely, knowing who you are, not needing to be different, and trusting yourself completely and trusting the world completely and absolutely, no matter what comes. That sense of trust, to me, that is what liberation is really about. And the trust is achieved through the ongoing process of practice, part of which is our relationship with our teachers. Coming to have confidence in someone whom we look to as an example and an inspiration is a necessity if we're going to be able to do the hard lifetime's work of transformation. And it's probably natural that at first we would mistake that person or idealize them in some way, but eventually we would come to see them for who they are and love them anyway. It's a process of maturing. And if we can go through that process with another person, we can do it with ourselves. We can trust ourselves, we can trust the world, we can trust everyone to be as they are. We can trust the Dharma to be the Dharma. 
We can trust impermanence to be impermanence. A synonym in Zen for uh, awakening is meeting your true self. This is not something you do by yourself. Yes, your body on the cushion, your effort to be diligent and attentive in your practice, but to see your true self, you must be seen by the true self of another. Otherwise, your spiritual accomplishment, however great it may be, and there are people who are enormously talented in spiritual skills and insights, however great those insights may be, without being seen by the true self of another, they will retain always a sneaky shadow of self-deception. And here's where the teacher is absolutely essential. Not because they're so wise and they see everything and they just know exactly how to straighten you out, but because they're willing to continue to live and practice with you come what may. They are willing to be the background to the foreground of your effort. So I've been lucky to have teachers that I could trust. Some of them uh, messed up badly, but I could trust them anyway to be who they were. That's who they were. They were always themselves. Learning to truly trust someone to be who they are is the most important thing that I've learned because it's helped me to trust myself and everybody. This is the great gift the supreme practice, the source of all creativity and growth. I think we call this profound compassion. So that's my essay uh, that I wrote for more or less. I didn't read it exactly word for word, but more or less for Buddha Dharma magazine. I don't think the issue has come out yet in which it appears. And I've, and I've presented it a few times before. Maybe, maybe some of you have heard me read that essay before because if I go somewhere else, why make another talk, you know? I'm busy. <laughs> so I've, I've, maybe some of you have heard this before. But when I, do, when I do present it, the few times that I have presented it, people often ask at the end, well, gee, it sounds like it's really necessary to have a teacher in order to practice Buddhism. Could you even practice Buddhism without a teacher? No, I don't think it's absolutely necessary to have a teacher. There's plenty of people who practice Buddhism or mindfulness or secular Buddhism or whatever they call it by being very diligent with their own practice, uh, reading a lot of books, listening to talks, Maybe they do this all by themselves. A lot of people do. They don't like groups. They don't like to join anything. Maybe they do join groups, you know, like occasionally here or there, or various groups. 
there are people who feel like they really have found a teacher by reading, by, by reading that person's books, hearing that person's voice online. They feel like, that's my teacher. Sometimes they don't find a particular teacher, but they listen to lots of different teachers and they feel like that's better because they hear different voices. I think in the future, the best Buddhist teacher on the planet Earth will be AI. <laughs> Makes sense, right? AI doesn't know just what one teacher knows. AI knows what all the teachers know. Got to be the best teacher. <laughs> so I, I bet some of you uh, could, could say, yeah, that's right. I, I do that. It works pretty good for me. So I don't say that you can't do that. On the other hand, uh, I do think there's something of great value in the Buddha's instructions as I write about them in the essay. I do think that, as I tried to say, there is a dimension to the practice that you don't experience without a teacher. Now, a lot of people might not be interested in this dimension. They might say, well, you know, that's not what I'm after here. In which case, right, then what's the point? You don't need it. But it's something that I personally valued and came to practice for. And I think it was worth the trouble. If I were to say what that difference is, maybe the difference is between developing yourself fully and going beyond yourself. Something like that. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, take a few more minutes here to uh, go back into the Kanki Sutta. Because there's something else in there that was not germane to my essay, but I think is interesting. I'd like to share with you this morning. Uh, the Buddha, uh, from the evidence from the suttas, the Buddha didn't uh, have a program as much as he just would respond to people who had questions. So almost all the teachings in the suttas come as a response to a particular questioner. And in this case, there is a young Brahmin who questions the Buddha. And he says to him, Master Gautama, in regard to the ancient Brahmanic hymns that have come down through the oral transmission, the hymns preserved in the collections, the Brahmins, my teachers, come to the following conclusion. Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. What do you have to say about this? So this young Brahmin, who is in that tradition, is asking the Buddha for his opinion about the truth claims of his tradition, the Vedas. Because at that time, nowadays, you know, we have a lot of, we have a vast Buddhist scriptures, you know. But in those days, there were no scriptures. There was just the Buddha wandering around, talking to people when they asked questions. The Buddha didn't hand down any scriptures. He only had the practice and whatever his spontaneous instructions were on the moment. So the young Brahmin is saying, well, so what do you think of the Vedas? And the Buddha, as he often did, answered the question with a question. 
he said to the young Brahmin, well, let me ask you, have you ever found a single Brahmin who said the following, I know this, I see this, only this is true, and anything else is wrong. So notice the difference here. On the one hand, you have the young Brahmin saying, my teachers say, this is true, anything else is wrong. And on the other hand, the Buddha is saying, does anybody say, I know this is true. I have seen this. And therefore, I know that it's true and that nothing else is true. And the Brahmin says, well, actually, no. None of them have said quite that. None of them have said that they've seen it for themselves, and so they are sure of it for that reason. They assert that they know the truth and that there's no other truth possible, but they do not say that they have known it and seen it for themselves. So then the Buddha goes on, he says, well, how about going back? You know, maybe none of your teachers have said that, but what about going back like four or five or six or seven generations to the great teachers of the past? Have any of them said that? I know this, I see this. It's only this is true, I've seen it for myself. And the young Brahmin thinks for a minute, he says, no, no, none of them have said that. And then the Buddha says, what about the ancient, ancient teachers who created the Vedas in the first place? Have they said that? And once again, the young Brahmin has to answer no. Well, the Buddha then says, well, it seems like there isn't a single one who actually has seen it or known it. It's like a file of blind men, each one in touch with the next. The first one doesn't see, the middle one doesn't see, the last one doesn't see. The Brahmins are kind of like that, a file of blind men following one after the other. Even the one in the front of the line doesn't see. So where are they all going? And how ground, is there any real grounding for their faith? So the Buddha seems like he's saying that the only truth that's worthwhile is the truth that you have seen for yourself, that you yourself know to be true for yourself. But the young Brahmin is not defeated by this. He, he has an answer. He says, well, it's not just the faith that they have that makes them think these things are true. They also honor it as oral tradition. And oral tradition has its own virtue and value. And then the Buddha goes into a long speech where he says that, well, there are different ways of discovering the truth. There's faith. There's approval, meaning you hear it, it jibes with what you already believe, so you approve of it. So there's faith, there's approval, there's oral tradition of longstanding, there's reasoning, there's reflection, those are different ways you might find the truth. In all of those ways, you might find something true, but maybe it's not true. It might be true and it might not be true. So when you have accepted something on the basis of one of these five, you can say to yourself or anybody else, well, according to my faith, according to my tradition, this is true. Or according to my reasoning, or according to my reflection, this is true. 
But you can never say, I know it, I see it, it is true, and anything else is false. By now, the young Brahmin is a little upset because this is his life, you know. So he says, well, but if that's so, if the usual criteria for determining the truth are not really reliable, then how do you know the truth? And this is the part that I found really interesting to me. The Buddha says, if a person has faith, he preserves the truth when they say, my faith is thus, but does not say, only this is true. Anything else is wrong. In this way, young Brahmin, there is preservation of the truth. In this way, the person preserves the truth. He hasn't discovered the truth, but he preserves the truth. And then the Buddha repeats, as often in the suttas, the same formula for the other five, uh, four ways of finding the truth, a tradition, approval, reasoning, and so on. All of these ways will give you something that might be true, but you don't know for sure. So that's preserving truth, knowing that you know something, but you cannot be certain of it. But you've found it out to the best of your ability. That's preserving the truth. Discovering the truth is seeing and knowing something for yourself. And then the Brahmin, of course, says, well, okay, you've told me how to preserve truth, now how do I discover truth? And that's when the Buddha tells him everything that I told you in my essay. Find a teacher, Evaluate the teacher, hang around, blah, blah, all the rest of this stuff. So anyway, I, this, this was really interesting to me, to preserve the truth, which I think is a good idea, right? We, don't we all want to preserve the truth? Would, would, would be to have a kind of modesty about what we know. I myself have lots of opinions about lots of different things. Things that I think I know. But if I'm honest about it and I look into this further, I can see that I really can't be entirely sure. In fact, I don't know about you, but in my case, most of what I think I know, I cannot be entirely sure about. I still can hold the view I don't need to be confused, you know. Yes, I feel this way about it. But I'm preserving the truth if I say, this is how I look at it, this is my view, this is what I think I know, but it might be otherwise. Wouldn't it be a better world if people preserved the truth in that way? Wouldn't that be nice? If they said, this is how I look at it, might not be true. Because they haven't seen these things firsthand. 
with their body and their whole heart and mind. So th this means that when the Buddha is talking about discovering the truth, he's not talking about ideas or views or bits of knowledge. He's talking about a human experience that you can be uniquely certain of, that will pervade your whole heart and mind and body. I myself am certain of impermanence and suffering. I am certain of the profundity of birth and death and of the tenderness of the human heart because of this. And also because of this, of the imperative to be as compassionate and as kind as I possibly can be. These are things that I know. I don't need to be right about them. I don't need to convince anybody else of them. I don't need to be known far and wide for them because they are just nothing special, but you know, some insight that I miraculously developed. They're just simple things that everybody knows and that are true for everyone. None of that matters. But because I know these things, I have a path through life. And I always know what to do, even when I have absolutely no idea what to do. I can be confused about this or that, as I sometimes am. But I'm never really confused because I'm clear about what really and truly matters. I think our practice uh, is very modest. It will not give us special knowledge or insight or some special kind of wisdom. But it will give us, all of us, not just special people, it will give us a sense of knowing for ourselves and for sure what our life is and therefore how to live it. in a world that is quite confusing. This is a very valuable thing. So I appreciate very much your listening to my talk. You know, there's no better audience than a Dharma audience. I'm very spoiled by this. Because if I go somewhere else, everybody's like fidgeting and looking at their phones and, you know, I say, what? You're not sitting there absolutely still listening to my every word? What? <laughs> it's very, very special to have an audience like you, I, and, I, and I don't take it for granted. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
Please enjoy the rest of your sitting today. Thank you.